Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wellness Wednesday podcast from the Rolf Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. Each of our episodes are recorded from our live events, so if you hear references to slides or visual resources, you could find links to them in the show notes. You can also find the full episodes on our Wellness Wednesday page at rolffoundation.org or watch on Rolf's YouTube channel. We hope that you find today's conversation to be informative, inspiring, and educational. And above all, we hope you feel connected to our community. We are in this fight together. You are not alone. Hello, and welcome back to Wellness Wednesday, where we share practical wellness tools and techniques from experts on topics that are important to patients, survivors, and caretakers alike. I'm Erin Kuhn Krieger, and I'm so thrilled to be back for this session, where I'll be co-moderating with our partners over at Cancer Wellness Center, Savina Chacheva. It's sure to be a fascinating conversation about the advances in surgical and medical options for pancreatic cancer patients. First, I wanna extend gratitude to our amazing Wellness Wednesday partners, WEX, Wolverine Execution Services, and the Bellick family. It's because of the support of our great partners that we're able to do so much in the community like tonight's session. So thank you very much. Tonight's conversation is actually quite timely uh, as we're in the midst of World Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. It's a time to put focus on this deadly disease, to raise awareness about the symptoms and the risk factors, to celebrate all of the warriors and caretakers, and applaud all of the researchers and medical teams, and of course, honor those who are no longer with us. Together, we can make a difference in the lives of so many people. We hope that you've been participating in all of our Awareness Month activities and look forward to seeing your continued photos and stories that you've been sharing on social media. There's been some great purple themed photos. Um, so please keep doing that. And don't forget this weekend, you can get some early holiday shopping in at the Kendra Scott jewelry store on Southport in Chicago, where 20% of the proceeds will be going to Rolf Foundation. And if you can't make it in store in Chicago, that's okay, we've got you covered. You could simply use the link and the code that uh, we're putting in the chat here. And there's still time uh, to enter our amazing raffle where you could win an in-home dining experience with executive chef Hagap Hagapian. It's award-winning um, chef, and not only will you be able to take the night off, you'll also be able to enjoy a multi-course gourmet meal for you and your friends. It's an experience of a lifetime, so be sure to get in on that. And again, you could see in the link, the link will be in the chat. Uh, the winner will be announced live during World Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Day, which is actually next Thursday, November 18th, and we'll be announcing it at noon on our social channels. Your support helps fund Rolf's efforts for early detection research and patient support, two areas that are so critical in need um, of, of help. So thank you for that. Okay, back to tonight. Our friends joining us, uh, for our friends joining us through Cancer Wellness Center, let me share a little bit about Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation. We're a local Chicago organization with connections to some of the leading pancreatic cancer hospitals and organizations in the Midwest and beyond. Rolf provides personal and tailored support to patients, survivors, and families in crisis by connecting individuals with medical experts, personalized resources and education, creating awareness around risks and symptoms, and funding early detection research. Our hands-on approach ensures that no one has to face this alone. So what does that look like? We do this by directly connecting patients and families with medical experts and special resources. Rolf funds early detection, excuse me, Ralph funds research because we understand 
that the best chance for saving lives is through early detection. And we provide ongoing education and support like our panel tonight to empower the families and the patients to make quick decisions with confidence. You could learn more about Ralph Foundation at ralphfoundation.org and connect with us through our social channels as well. We'll put the links in the chat section for more information and easy access to be able to find us quickly. Now I'd like to welcome my partner tonight, Savina Chacheva from Cancer Wellness Center. Welcome Savina. Hi, good evening. Thank you so much, Erin, for having us uh, tonight. Um, and thank you everyone for joining us. I, for those of you that are new to the Cancer Wellness Center, I would just like to take a minute to let you know about the services that the center offers. Um, the Cancer Wellness Center is a nonprofit organization that aims to improve the emotional and physical being of those diagnosed with cancer and their loved ones. We provide a variety of free programs and services, including education programs like the one this evening, wellness classes like Tai Chi, meditation, stress reduction, and support services that include counseling and support groups. Again, all free and um, there to support the families in need. Thank you so much to Rock and Greta Cancer Foundation for partnering with us today. And, um, and now I would like to give it back to Erin to introduce our speakers. Thanks so much. And thanks again for your continued support and partnership. We, we truly appreciate everything that you've been able to um, do with us. So uh, a few housekeeping items as we get started. You Don't forget that you could ask questions throughout the entire session in the comment section below. And if you're not comfortable posting, um, then you can email them to us at info at ralphfoundation.org. And we'll be saving all questions until the end to make sure that we can get to as many as possible. Tonight, we have two incredible speakers. Uh, we're, we're really honored to have these two doctors who are real um, amazing within their field. We have Dr. Mark Talmonti, Professor of Surgery at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine and Chairman of the Department of Surgery at North Shore University Health System. And also Dr. Melissa Hoag, who is the Director of HPB Surgery at North Shore University Health System and the Director of Advanced Robotic Training for the Granger Center of Simulation and Innovation. I'll let each of them share more about their impressive background and experiences. And first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Talamonti. Welcome, Doctor. Well, good evening, Erin, and thank you, Sabina. And thank, thank both you. of your organizations for what you do for the patients with these uh, incredibly challenging diseases. And, you know, I, I, uh, my first encounter with the Rolf Foundation was actually about 25 years ago when I was a young assistant professor at Northwestern and uh, they were just getting their traction as a, a, a philanthropic organization that really wanted to make an impact in, in pancreatic research. And I was fortunate enough early in my career to meet the people from the Rolf Foundation and uh, they helped me get my first external uh, grant in pancreatic research, which led to the development of a pancreatic cancer database and a tumor bank at Northwestern, which we've now transferred over to the North Shore. So uh, a great deal of gratitude and appreciation for the Royal Foundation and the role they played in my early part of my career. And in terms of the Cancer Wellness Center, I can't say enough about the selflessness uh, that they show and demonstrate for patients with not only pancreatic cancer, but every form of cancer. It's really an extraordinarily selfless, committed, a group of people that uh, do wonderful things for patients and their families. So thank both of you <clears throat> for everything you do, for the doctors that try to make a difference, and for the patients who so sorely need your help. And as uh, Aaron mentioned, I am a, pro uh, a professor of clinical surgery at the University of Chicago, and I have the good fortune of leading the Department of Surgery at North Shore, where we've uh, built a, a really great program in, in all facets of surgery, 
but none finer than what we've tried to do in hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery. And we had a pivotal point in time three years ago when we were fortunate enough to recruit Dr. Melissa Hogue from the University of Pittsburgh. And I'll tell you a little bit more about her background, but if you want to see um, something, uh, see a program uh, go to the next level with a singular recruitment, you have to see what uh, Melissa's done for our program at North Shore just by showing up and bringing all of her core values and her vision and her, her gifts uh, to North Shore. She's really a, a special person. She was born in uh, Northwest Indiana, grew up in Gary, Indiana, and like a good Hoosier, went to Notre Dame for her undergraduate years. Uh, and, and just to give you a, a, a personal perspective about how tough and, and gritty this individual is, she couldn't go to Notre Dame and just major in one uh, field. She majored in two uh, fields. She had two majors. Uh, one was in pre-professional pre-medical studies in which she graduated summa cum laude. And then her second major at uh, Notre Dame was in media and film communications when she stepped down a little bit and only graduated magna cum laude there. Uh, and following that, she uh, attended medical school at Northwestern where uh, again, consistent with her gifts and skills and her perseverance, she was elected to the National Medical Honor Society, AOA, and was ranked so highly that Northwestern kept her as a surgical resident. And that's where uh, I first got to know Melissa. I met her, I think, as she was a medical student, but really got to know her when she was a surgical resident. And uh, again, was just so impressed by her grit and perseverance, which are two characteristics that make all the great pancreatic surgeons. And, and following uh, residency at uh, Northwestern, she then went to the University of Pittsburgh for a surgical oncology fellowship and then stayed on staff there for five years as an attending physician. And, and, and what she's accomplished in her uh, career at Pittsburgh and now that she's transported to North Shore is just nothing short of extraordinary. You, you know, Melissa is the entire package when it comes to an academic pancreatic surgeon. She is uh, uh, gifted uh, with robotic technology and so much so that she is, uh, I believe, the only surgeon on the planet that has done more robotic uh, Whipple procedures for pancreatic cancer than open uh, procedures. So a pioneer in, in an innovative technology. She's taken one of the most formidable operations along with her mentors at the University of Pittsburgh and transferred a, a embryonic innovative technology uh, and, and shown that you can take that technology and do that operation uh, safely and effectively, but she'll go into more detail about that. She's also uh, uh, proven to be a, a real multidisciplinary surgical oncologist. And what does that mean? You know, it's one thing to be a surgeon that, that just knows how to do an operation. It's another thing to understand truly the biology of the cancer that you're operating on and the role that things like immunotherapy, biologic therapy, chemotherapy, radiation therapy play. And Melissa's CV is, is balanced between the technologic and the, the surgical uh, things she does with robotic Whipples, but also the biology of the tumor and the impact that multidisciplinary care uh, makes. And then finally, where I think she's really going to uh, um, uh, be famous for for the next 20 years is what she's doing in surgical education. Remember, it's one thing to teach yourself how to do an operation. It's another thing to also understand the biology of the disease and the role of multidisciplinary care. But to really elevate your game, uh, you have to be a teacher. You have to be able to uh, impart that knowledge and that experience to the next generation of surgeons. And, and I think what she's done in the, in the realm of educating people about how to use the robot safely, it, 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 it's just uh, beyond uh, uh, compare. 
I, I will tell you a short vignette about my own personal experience uh, with robotic surgery. I, I, I was probably 60 some years old before I realized that that minimally invasive surgery for, for pancreatic disease was not hypothetical, but it was real. I was at an international meeting in Sao Paulo, Brazil, when I heard Dr. Hogue give her presentation about the, the new paradigm for teaching robotic surgery. And it was different than anything we'd ever done in terms of teaching traditional open surgery. And I knew at that moment that there was a pivotal point in time in, in, in American surgery and certainly international surgery where uh, you could take a curriculum that Dr. Hogan and her partners at University of Pittsburgh crafted, created, and modified, and you could teach those gifts, those special skills to another generation of surgeons. So I went out there and I spent three, three weeks with Dr. Hogue, and it was just, it was transformational. And, and when I came back to North Shore and the opportunity came to recruit Dr. Hogue from the University of Pittsburgh back to Chicagoland and back to North Shore, it, it, it was to me the, 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 one of the best recruits I've ever had the, the good fortune of completing. So without further ado, I, I'm going to introduce my extraordinary partner, a gifted surgeon, a wonderful educator, and, and somebody who has all the same core values that the Roll Foundation does in terms of advancing new techniques and new technology and new information to take better care of pancreatic cancer patients. So ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Melissa Hogue. Hey, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And thanks for the Rolf Center and the, um, the Cancer Wellness Center uh, for allowing me the opportunity uh, to talk more about, you know, one of my favorite topics um, and that's pancreatic cancer. And so as I'm pulling up my slides here, um, we're gonna be talking a little bit about advances in surgery and medical options for the treatment of pancreatic cancer. I do have disclosures that I teach courses on robotic training. Um, so the agenda for today uh, is to start out with multimodality therapy for pancreas cancer. What's sort of the best evidence we have out there right now? How does that guide how we should treat patients for the best optimal outcome? And highlight how we've used those clinical trials here at North Shore and some other opportunities that are, that are ahead. Also, it's not only about um, treating pancreas cancer, it's identifying those high-risk patients and just talking about setting up clinics for those and treatment strategies for that. And end with something fun and ta talking about the minimally invasive approach to pancreatic surgery and how do we train the next generation. So I think, you know, some of the most excitement um, with cancer therapy uh, now is just, just keeping moving the needle by offering as many therapies as we can to hopefully have as best survivorship as we can for, um, uh, for cancer patients. And, you know, if we're going to look here, you know, at uh, pancreatic cancer, you know, it's been a bad actor, um, you know, for decades and decades. And this is a paper I like to show from Memorial Sloan Kettering, where it looks at the last three decades of pancreatic care. And we've come a long way with surgical therapy. You could see in three decades, 30-day mortality has gone down, 90-day mortality has gone down, one-year mortality has gone down, because these are aggressive cancers. These are, you know, major procedures. And the outcomes are getting better, as well as length of stay and post-op care is getting better. But unfortunately, in those three decades, we hadn't moved the needle much in terms of survivorship. So what is ahead? What can we do to help that? And some of this study has already been done, and we're kind of parlaying that for what the future is. So this is a... Um, a randomized trial, you know, CONCO, which basically tells us that adjuvant therapy, so getting chemotherapy after surgery is better for survivorship than if you don't. So this is sort of the first building block of what's the best way to treat pancreas cancer. 
But then if chemotherapy is good, is chemo and radiation therapy better? And the answer to that, based on this EPS-PAC-1 trial, was no. Chemotherapy with, radi uh, with radiation was not better. Um, so that's also set the stage that it's not necessarily more therapy, but when to include it, when to not, that's really important. And so the next question was how much chemotherapy? And really looking back um, at this SPAC-3 trial, this showed us it's actually six months of therapy. So when I meet a patient with pancreatic cancer, before I get into anything else, I say, you know, the next nine months of your life is going to be dedicated to fighting this cancer. We want to get you surgery. We want to, you know, let you recover. You know, we want to give you chemotherapy and we'll talk about the sequencing, but you essentially will need six months of chemo um, and surgery and its perioperative um, amount because Patients that get less than six months based on this study actually have less, uh, less survival than if they got the complete six months. But what this study also showed, it doesn't matter exactly uh, when you get that um, after surgery, but we try to give that chemotherapy afterwards within 12 weeks. So then the next thing, this SPAC-4 was sort of the, the first study that showed combined more than just GEM alone or 5-FU alone had better survivor um, than the single arm study. But also what this showed us was that if you had negative margins, and we've already known this in non-randomized data, but this one showed too with randomized data that negative margins is even better for survival. So really, you know, we're building up a lot of information. You know, you, you want a cure, you want surgery, but you also need chemotherapy. You probably need six months of chemotherapy. You need negative margins. You know, so how do we use this information? Well, the, you know, this study, you know, barely had time to breathe on the, on the PubMed before this next study came out. And this is sort of now what we're considering the standard of care, uh, care for pancreas cancer in the sense of full furanox. And so this has been the best survival to date, um, looking at uh, median survival, which had historically been between like 20 months to 26 months, et cetera, after surgery. And this one showed a whopping 54 months of survival. So people getting six months of full furanox, people getting surgery. And this sequencing is still for this study with surgery first, you know, chemotherapy later. Um, but many studies have showed us that, you know, having surgery will sometimes derail people from being able to get chemotherapy, that maybe only half of the people will get chemotherapy after surgery. And really the chemotherapy is just as important um, as the surgery itself. And that's why as a cancer surgeon, it's important not to just say, you know, I could cut the tumor out, but it's to say, you know, I could be a quarterback and guide this patient to try and get them into the hands of everyone they need. Because it's very easy. Every person wants to come into your clinic and be told, oh, no sweat, easy surgery. You will take the cancer out and, and you'll be done. Don't worry about it. I wish I could tell people that, but I know it's not true. And I have to just really tell them, you know, there's a lot we need to do uh, and we're here to get you through all that. Um, so now there's been a paradigm shift, and I haven't gone through a lot of the, the data on why we've done this, uh, but it has to do with negative margins. It has to do with people not getting chemotherapy. It has to do with better outcomes. Um, and now we're trying to give uh, chemotherapy upfront as much as possible. So having people being seen in a multidisciplinary clinic with their scans, getting labs, including CN99, giving them upfront therapy and, you know, not only fulfurinox, but gemabraxane, you know, for between two and six months prior to surgery, 
then we restage them, look to see, do they have a CT response? Do they have progression? Um, or do they have a CA199 response and get them ready for surgery, which hopefully, and we'll talk a little bit more in detail about this later, uh, can include robotic surgery. Then we talk about their margins. We talk about the response to tumor. We decide, you know, um, how much more chemotherapy they need, need. Did they get all six months up front and don't need any more now? Or did they get half up front and need half the back? And then also selective use of radiation, basically both uh, in the pre-op setting and in the post-op setting potentially. But um, but not we don't hit as hard with the, the radiation as we do chemotherapy because chemotherapy has been shown to um, improve survival. And that's what I tell patients. The number one patient-centered outcome is your survival. You know, we, we keep in mind all kinds of other things as well, but that's what patients are scared about and that's what they wanna know that you have. Um, uh, you do have their backs in that regard. And so, you know, what are some of the benefits of new adjuvant therapy? It can de decrease the T stage of the tumor size, decrease the end stage, so less lymph nodes, increase R0 resection, so negative margins, and better survival. But also, unfortunately, it weed out, weeds out early progression. There are some people with biologically aggressive tumors, you know, that, uh, that may progress regardless of surgery, but they may have a better quality of life without the operation. And then also postoperatively, less complications, including pancreatic fistulas, which is somewhat the Achilles heel of many pancreatic resections. So some of the um, most compelling data, I really like this study from MD Anderson. And what this shows here is that if you have um, surgery first and have a major complication, you really have the same survival as if you had surgery first and no resection. And really what this isn't saying is you're not getting your chemotherapy after surgery because you had too many complications. However, if you have you know, um, chemotherapy first um, and have major complications, you really have the same and better survival than if than patients that didn't have any complications. So really, you know, neoadjuvant not only improves um, uh, patients' outcomes after surgery, but it also improves their survival by getting them through um, and getting um, both modalities of therapy. And so, you know, uh, as this paradigm has shifted nationally, um, North Shore has shifted right along with this. So, you know, I, I had looked at some data, you know, older data, newer data. And, uh, you know, we used to maybe be giving um, neoadjuvant therapy to a third of patients. So these might be people that had a lot of vessel involvement, you know, a borderline resectable, really bad disease. Uh, but now we're, we're trying to give them to as many people as we can that come through the door. So 82% of our uh, pancreatic cancer patients are getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And, you know, this statistics come out of PanCan um, a couple years ago that sort of for the first time ever, you know, you were seeing double digit five-year survival rates for pancreas cancer. Um, and I remember when I was uh, in medical school or residency, this was like 4%. So, you know, a lot of these changes are sort of um, having some uh, downstream effects. And, and really that's because unfortunately the survival is low because half the patients present with metastatic disease. Um, but you know this neoadjuvant approach and um, giving multimodality therapy, I think is really improving the outcomes for this group of patients that have borderline resectable disease, which means some vessel involvements that you could still operate on or unresectable disease, which may means you, you have too much vessel involvement, you can't operate on them, but hopefully with the therapy, you could downstage them. And that happens probably about 20% of the time. So you're giving those people a, a chance for long-term survival. 
So there's so many clinical trials that have recently closed or that are out now, but I want to highlight a few um, that we were participants of North Shore and, and sort of how we're integrating this into practice. So, um, you know, still this question now, I told you about people looked into the radio radiation after surgery. Well, this Alliance study looked at, you know, um, the radiation before surgery. And so just to highlight, you know, one group got chemotherapy alone before surgery, the other person got chemo and radiation therapy. And sort of similar to the outcomes that we saw on that SPAC uh, post-operative trial, the addition of therapy did not improve survival uh, beyond what the chemotherapy uh, alone did. So as much as we're learning about pancreas cancer, there's still so much we don't know, and there's still so much to debate. In fact, at many meetings, you know, um, academic meetings on pancreas cancer, it's still a, a hot topic. In fact, uh, uh, Dr. Telemani had debated this very thing uh, with one of the premier surgeons uh, in Europe um, from Heidelberg. And so it's just still a, still a hot button, but, um, you know, we're just acquiring more data, and that's uh, sort of the exciting thing. But it's not not only about the multimodality therapy, it's also about the patient's outcomes, because if they have less complications, that actually means better oncologic survival. So this is another study that we recently um, have been a part of. Um, and this study just closed, it hasn't been published yet, but it was looking at the best preoperative antibiotic um, to, to decrease infections after surgery. And, and actually Zosin 1, um, hopefully I'm not giving away too much uh, information, but this, this uh, paper should be out later this year. And we are able to participate and put our patients on this trial. Um, and the next thing, you know, it, I wish we knew more. I mean, you know, so there's some people that don't respond to certain chemotherapies, but respond to others. And we don't really have a way of knowing that yet. And so we're hopefully about to start a, um, a multi-institutional trial out there that actually looks at adaptive therapy for patients that are not responding to chemo and sort of drilling down on those. The ones that are doing great, you know, keeping with the standard of care, but the ones that aren't, you know, uh, what can we find in terms of circulating tumor DNA biomarkers, et cetera, to determine how, um, you know, which patients will respond to better therapy. So this is hoping something we're hoping to, um, to get kicked off uh, in the next few months, but there's a lot of people out there looking at this with the Know Your Tumor um, and, and all other registries out there, but, um, but there's a lot of exciting stuff going on uh, to keep the progression to fight this disease. And that sort of leads us into the high-risk uh, clinic as well. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, a couple ways to identify high-risk patients. Some are, are, are cysts and then um, some are with genetic mutations. So this is a current study going on right now. Um, it's an ECOG trial that we're part of, but it's really um, looking at low intensity versus high intensity surveillance. So, you know, right now um, there's many different guidelines. Um, as a surgeon, I follow the surgical Fukuyaka guidelines, but there's also GI guidelines and other, you know, European, Asian, et cetera, guidelines out there. Uh, so this is a study looking to see how often do we survey because on the one hand, we don't want to, um, miss anyone who's going to develop a cancer. But on the other hand, we don't want to operate on all these people that don't need an operation because as I've told you, it can be morbid. Um, so anyway, this is a very interesting study. It'll take a long time to accrue, but something that we're part of here at North Shore. And this is something we're hoping to develop. Actually, one of the pathologists at Pittsburgh was really into molecular analysis. And so, you know, molecular analysis of tumors, of et cetera, is just the hot topic, the buzzword across the board. And at our Society of Surgical Oncology, that's going to be um, uh, in March, you know, we have a whole program um, that's just 
uh, devoted to sort of molecular targets for different cancers, pancreas being one of them and pancreas cysts being another one of them to decide, you know, you know, how can we detect things earlier? How can we target therapy more? How can we be more exact? And this is a study, you know, looking at cyst fluid analysis where the epithelial cells of cysts said shed their DNA into the cyst fluid and we look for molecular targets uh, and have identified uh, several targets. Now, a lot of this, um, this analysis is proprietary to Pittsburgh, uh, but we've been in uh, in discussion with them about trying to send our patients cis fluid there. And they probably have about a dozen institutions doing that now. So I think this is gonna be, you know, by and large gonna become the main way we determine how we operate on these cysts and how much we survey these cysts. It's gonna be by looking at their molecular profile and determining, hey, you're someone at risk, you know, let's take you to surgery earlier rather than later and saying to someone else, hey, you're not at risk, you know, let's stop imaging you every six months, 12 months, et cetera. And so that's really exciting stuff. You know, um, when patients come with a new diagnosis of pancreas cancer, you know, a lot of times they're like, my mom didn't have it. My dad didn't have it. I don't know why I get it. You know, and I tell them, unfortunately, most of the time, it's just bad luck, you know, that most are sporadic, you know, one cell went awry. Um, and that's more common the older you get. But there are hereditary syndromes in the, in the, um, in genetic mutations, and they're all familial syndromes, uh, which the familial are probably just genetic mutations we don't know yet, you know, and there's some other, um, other uh, risk factors like chronic pancreatitis and smoking. So I think, you know, there's a lot more excitement um, being uh, generated around this now. And I think a lot of this is just because the stigma of getting genetic testing is so much different now than it was a decade ago, as well as a, a lot of guidelines, including breast cancer guidelines, are essentially saying standard of care is um, is having um, genetic uh, testing done for tumors. So more and more people, and so sort of high-risk clinics are really are really exploding in, in with the 2018 NCCN guidelines. There is some guidance uh, for the management of this. So I think this is um, a burgeoning area, but there's still a lot more that we can do. But I think just setting up these high-risk clinics for cysts and genetics, and uh, this is something we've done here at North Shore, and we're trying to teach our mid-level providers to do and, and take on to really take it to a next level to, to be able to throughput a high, uh, high amount of patients with screening and virtual um, uh, virtual clinic visits have been great for this. I think one of the great byproducts of the pandemic is, you know, with your surveillance and stuff, it, you can really make things very um, patient-centered and easy for them to do. You know, so now uh, kind of moving on to the minimally invasive approach to pancreas surgery. Um, and I think this uh, is another one of the big excitement. I mean, we, we got to think about multimodality therapy. We got to think about clinical trials. We have to think about molecular analysis because these are just all the burgeoning areas. These are all the things that we currently have a lot more research on that have uh, come out in the last you know, few years, but there's so much more to know, so much more to do. And while foundations like the Rolf Foundation, et cetera, are critical to help um, push some of this research, I think the next thing you know is that we have to think about patient-centered outcomes. We have to think about um, technologic advancement. And I think minimally invasive approaches to pancreas surgery is a great way to do that. And so, you know, in 2019, there was an international evidence-based uh, guideline uh, on minimally invasive pancreas resection. And people came from, you know, every continent, um, you know, 50, 60 nations were included. Uh, Dr. Talamani and, I, and myself were both uh, part of these guidelines. 
and um, you know, looking spe at specific things like a distal pancreatectomy, this um, this international con congress basically said standard of care for distal pancreatectomy should be minimally invasive, and you know, and I think that um, open um, distal pancreatectomies is really a, a notch below the standard of care these days. You know, we're well over 50, 60 percent are being done this way, but probably um, most should be do done this way, in, in, with the exception of some very advanced, you know, uh, vascular disease. Now, pancreatic duodenectomy, the Whipple, it's a bigger operation, and the data is not uh, the same for it. it. It's saying it's equally safe, equally effective. There's no uh, there's nothing that makes it seem uh, more dangerous or um, or better than open either. So these are kind of considered equivalent. And just as I say, about 50 or 60% of uh, distals are being done this way. It's probably about 15% for Whipples in the United States. But that number in the last decade has probably grown from about 3 or 4%. Um, to about 15, you know, in the last five or six years. So I, I you know, in, come in a decade, we may be talking about that being the standard of care as well. And so North Shore, just keeping up with the Joneses, um, you know, we've looked at our, our series um, and sort of the recent, we have about over 70% of our patients being done robotically, you know, from where, you know, half a decade ago, about 5% were being done robotically. Um, and what have we seen in our own patient outcomes? And these mirror uh, what you see in the published data. We haven't published this information yet, but decreased blood loss, increased lymph node harvest. And you know, having read a ton of these papers, that's pretty much uh, what you see out there, as well as decreased uh, hospital stay and uh, decreased wound infections. And really just with tiny little incisions, uh, as opposed to a big incision, um, it really makes a lot of sense why, the, why those are the case. You know, so what is robotic surgery? Uh, and I think, um, you know, I get a lot of questions like, you know, you know, does the robot do my operation? You know, what do you do, um, et cetera. And I, I was gonna show you this little video um, to, uh, to illustrate where, you know, you move the robotic arms with your hands here and you do the coagulation, um, you know, with uh, the cautery with your feet here. Um, and you're sitting over here with this, you know, um, high definition 3D, uh, you know, computer interface, whereas you're controlling these instruments here remotely um, that are doing the operating within the body. And this has been shown to have many advantages where you increase dexterity, you know, I'm right-handed um, and obviously kind of, you know, a forehand, you know, just like in tennis is a lot easier than a backhand. Um, whereas essentially robotic makes you right-handed, left-handed, forehand just as easily as backhand because it eliminates any tremor. It gives you more degrees of freedom. Um, it has 3D uh, visualization and it has amazing magnification um, and all these other little bells and whistles with uh, visualization and dyes, et cetera. So it really basically is what I call a performance enhancing drug. It's like putting a computer interface between the surgeon and the patient to decrease errors and to in increase just um, optimization of your, uh, of your OR environment. So now I'm gonna have a little disclaimer for anyone who's squeamish out there. Um, I'm gonna show you guys um, some videos, first of the Whipple um, and then of the distal. And this is sort of how I break the Whipple down into, into seven steps. But the uncinate retroperitoneal dissection is, is probably the most difficult and has all the blood vessels. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna show that for you here. 
And this is the robot. That's a um, what you're kind of controlling off screen. And you see over here, this is the pancreas. This is the duodenum. This is that major blood vessel um, that's being attached uh, to the liver. Um, and what we have to do is essentially the the pancreas wraps around this major blood vessel about three quarters of the way, or what we call like 270 degree uh, wrapping um, that happens during embryological development. And what we have to do is essentially unwrap the pancreas from this blood vessel. So you can see here that um, the blood vessel with a huge branch uh, that's being attached to the pancreas is being dissected off. And just sort of slowly and diligently, layer by layer, we're going through every um, every uh, every uh, amount of tissue in order to uh, make sure that we don't, you know, get into a blood vessel that we don't want to give. And I know most of you that aren't surgeons won't know this, but the visualization that we can see here is about 10 times better. Because imagine, you know, you add your arms length, you add your torso length, and you add your head length, you know, so about four feet away. Um, and even though we can use some, some glasses that provide magnification, uh, nothing provides this level of magnification. And so, um, you know, I, I do this uh, operation, you, you kind of have like for every surgery, two people, sort of a yin and a yang um, in order to perform surgery. And so for robotic surgery, instead of someone being on the right side of the table, someone being on the left side of the table, you know, someone is at the, um, is at the body doing laparoscopy and you could see that suction uh, to the right um, is someone standing at the bedside. And then you could see the robot um, is what I'm performing here. And I'm looking for an artery uh, that uh, hides behind this big vessel. So just essentially, um, doing a Whipple becomes somewhat like a formula. You know, first I find this blood vessel and I take it, then I find that blood vessel and I dissect it. Um, and it's just like a stepwise, very, um, you know, sort of tedious progression. Uh, but you want to do two things. You want to be as safe as possible, trying to decrease blood loss. Um, you know, you want to be as meticulous as you can, but then you also want to do as great of a dissection as you can to get all these lymph nodes in this area and be right on this blood vessel. That little blood vessel behind it's probably about one millimeter, you know? So a lot of times you never even see that when you do open surgery. But really the visualization that the robot allows, and you can see me pointing everything out for several reasons is one is, you know, for the person operating with me, you know, so we're, you know, affiliated with the University of Chicago. So I have residents and fellows that assist me um, and, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, teaching them the anatomy, teaching them where exactly I want them to go. But also, uh, because I train a lot of other surgeons how to do this, I like to take a, uh, the time to, to point out these, um, these blood vessels uh, while I do the operation uh, for, for teaching purposes. And so you can just see, you know, here kind of a slow, meticulous, deliberate, um, you know, um, approach to, to seeing every blood vessel um, that is possible in order to do this dissection. And you can see coming from below here, we're seeing that artery. Um, that was the vein we took earlier. That was the artery dissected earlier. And uh, now we're just kind of finishing everything off. Usually at this point, you're kind of, you know, breathing a sigh of relief because you know that you found all of the important things. You know that you've gotten the margin that you need to get. And uh, now, you know, you're kind of in the home stretch. Uh, but this uh, is a, a lot of fun, and I think that uh, it translates to a lot of improved um, possibilities of outcomes in patients. And here's sort of the after 
picture, you know, looking at there's no more pancreas left at all. All you're left with this big vessel. That's the vena cava in the back, you know, the biggest vein in the body. Um, and that's why pancreas surgery is, um, you know, is difficult is that you have all these blood vessels here. So, you know, as John Cameron, one of, you know, the most famous uh, surgeons in the United States used to say, you're never more than a millimeter away from disaster. And then, you know, he kind of liked that approach. I'm like, you know, let me stay out of disaster at all costs. Um, but next, the next most common operation done uh, for pancreas cancer is a distal pancreatectomy. And this is where you kind of take the tail of the pancreas off. And for cancers, we take the spleen. Um, and the sort of uh, more difficult part of this operation is the middle step here of the vascular dissection and pancreas transection. So that's what I'm going to show you. And here, just kind of looking at the tumor, looking at the anatomy, you can see here, this actually patient has been radiated. Um, this tissue you can see is a little boggy um, and a little bit swollen. Um, and here, you, you know, you see some of the blood vessels. This is the aftershot uh, when you take the, the pancreas off, um, seeing the adrenal, the kidneys, um, as well as uh, the main, um, you know, uh, mesenteric vessels uh, that we saw in the last one. So, uh, and this is the, um, the spleen being lifted up and that, that's the kidney itself. So again, you know, for cancer surgery, everything is about getting uh, a negative margin. So you have to do that with surgical technique, but the way you enhance that is preoperative therapy. And that's why I think neoadjuvant therapy is so critical as you have an uh, increased chance of getting uh, a negative margin, meaning no tumor cell is left behind. And here we're taking the splenic vein, and this is that same vein you saw on the other side. And then this is the artery. Now we're looking at it on the other side because, you know, before we were dissecting the patient's right, and now we're dissecting the patient's left. And this is all radiated tissue. And um, I know I was telling you, you know, uh, studies have shown not to do radiation. So we selectively do it um, when there's artery involvement uh, and we don't resect arteries, we resect veins. So anytime we're leaving an artery, we want to radiate that tissue to give it the best chance of killing all the tumor that we can. And again, and everything with cancer surgery is about your lymph node harvest. So the, the closer you could give to those blood vessels without going in, the more lymph nodes you're going to get. Um, and uh, taking every tissue away, so all you're leaving is the bare essentials uh, for a negative margin. Those are the two uh, most important principles um, for cancer surgery. And I mean, um, the visualization of how you can see everything uh, with this robotic platform and do everything you can do open is really extraordinary. Um, and so, you know, at, when I was at Pittsburgh, you know, I did the study on looking at oncologic outcomes after robotic versus open uh, resection. Um, and you can see we had sort of a, a non-significant, but a little bit of a spread where the red robotic, um, slightly better, um, better survival uh, than open. Uh, but importantly, and you know, I always tell people, you know, I'm a cancer surgeon, not a robotic surgeon. So it's always about the cancer, um, and the robot is a tool. But you know, no matter what profession you're, you are, you want to have as many instruments in the toolbox as you can. So I think it just only enhances your um, your ability as a surgeon to have more options out there. But it fundamentally comes down to biology, and what this shows us is that patients with adjuvant therapy do better. And that doesn't matter if you do the surgery open or robotic, they need to get their adjuvant therapy. Patients that have complications do worse. 
And it doesn't matter if you're open or you're robotic, you have to minimize your complica complications because that parlays to survival. And then neoadjuvant therapy, at least at Pittsburgh, how things were there, better survival. And again, we saw that more with the robotic surgery and sort of a trend here in the open surgery. But these fundamental principles are the same and they supersede any technology. However, on our multivariate analysis, we did show that the risk of death was decreased with robotic surgery. And I think that's multifactorial. And I'm not trying to say robotic surgery has decreased um, survival or uh, has in, improved survival than open surgery, but it's not inferior. And the reason I say this um, is because, you know, it's about more, um, it's about more than technique. And, you know, this is a, a slide I stole from my previous boss who studied at Halstead, uh, but also uh, trained at Pittsburgh where these two giants of surgery, um, Halstead and Bernie Fisher uh, were there. And Halstead's known for this radical mastectomy and Bernie Fisher's, you know, noted for um, lumpectomy and all the clinical trials that went behind that. And so I, I think one point I wanna give you is that approaches um, like technique, like robotic, right, lack, right, open should not impact survival from cancer. But the principles of cancer surgery, the lymph node harvest, the meticulous detail of uh, margin negativity, um, the neoadjuvant therapy, um, the minimization of complications, those things matter over and above all else. Uh, but you can see here that um, you know, more radical surgery could be more disfiguring in the case of breast cancer. And now that's not necessarily um, the, the uh, message in terms of uh, what I wanna say in terms of cosmesis for what we do here, but there are other patient-centered outcomes and surgeon-centered outcomes that are important. And one thing I'll note, here's the visualization of how you see things robotically at the bottom and how you see things openly at the top. And here's an example of an incision, you know, open, you know, versus robotically. But I think what's more important is what are the patients experiencing after surgery? So this is a study, hopefully it'll be published pretty soon. Um, we're under revisions in one of the journals, uh, but it's a quality of life survey. And we look to see what's your quality of life after surgery. And not surprisingly, when people are in the hospital after a major pancreas surgery, their quality of life goes down. You know, uh, I don't think it could really go other way, but how do you rebound? And what we showed was that upon discharge and after three months, uh, improvement above baseline of quality of life um, was seen in robotic, but not necessarily open. And what about movements and patients getting around? So we put Fitbits on the patients after open and, and uh, robotic surgery. And this manuscript we're starting to write up now. But what we saw was that people that underwent robotic surgery had on average per day. So this is each day after surgery. So you could see how as days after surgery go on, that, that goes up. But day for day, more steps after robotic surgery compared to open surgery. And so that's, you know, fun and exciting. And that's also grounded in how the patient experience is. You know, but I think, you know, you know, how do you go, you know, from never having done a backflip to doing a backflip, you know? And so that's where the training comes in. You know, you know, people could be great open pancreas surgeons, but when you learn a new technique, you know, there's some more learning curve to it. So how do we minimize that learning curve while maximizing the emphasis on maintaining and improving patient outcomes? And so this is a training program I developed for Whipples, but I've used it in a lot of other, um, in a lot of other avenues. Cause if you teach for a Whipple, you could teach for a surgery less complicated for a Whipple. So I'm not gonna go into all the details, but I basically broke surgery down 
And so about five different proficiencies, like mastering the instrument, mastering tissue handling, mastering the procedure, et cetera. So I built a training program. I studied it. I validated it and instituted it in many different forms. And a couple of those, oh, well, I'll talk about a couple of those in a second, but just the principle behind it is that look at this basic surgical tenet of needle driving. And you see here, this is virtual reality. So this is a backhanded, um, and this is a forehanded procedure here that we're doing. And then um, next, it'll go from the right hand to left hand. So this is kind of a left-handed, forehanded procedure. So this is a way to start learning this. You're on a computer interface. This is sort of a, a left-handed backhand that you're performing here. And you start things on your own time on a... Um, uh, on a virtual reality simulator. And then you move on to this sort of an animate environment where you kind of recognize the real world, not the virtual world, but still with basic drills. And then graduate once your proficiency is adequate in these two, these deliberate practice models. And here you can see this is a, a anastomotic um, bio tissue model I designed uh, with a company called Lifelike. Um, and uh, this is performing a pancreatic ojejunostomy. And here you could see this being performed um, in a patient. You know, so what I always tell people is like, who do you want to be doing your surgery? Someone who's gone through training, someone who's perfected the technique prior to coming into the operating room, or someone who's using you, you know, or the patient as their first uh, level of experience. So I really think that developing tra uh, training programs is a game changer. And not only training surgery, but I think surgical education is akin to surgical quality. Uh, and really, you know, the best outcomes come from, you know, meticulous technical skills. And so what did we show for this? Um, at Pittsburgh, we showed you could train, you know, fellows how to do this. Um, and so the participation in robotic surgery went up after this time period. The number of steps um, the residents were able to do um, on a Whipple had went up. And especially the most difficult, like I showed you um, from that video, uh, the resection phase, uh, more could be done that way. And uh, I don't have this data pictured here, but we, we transferred this knowledge with not only not a loss um, in patient outcomes, but an improvement in patient outcomes. Um, and we showed this both for um, Whipple procedure and distal procedure, uh, where using this training program as you go through generation one, generation two, generation three, uh, just uh, e each step uh, improves uh, patient outcomes. So, you know, it, this is not that you're letting someone else do it and you're compromising, you're training someone to be efficient outside of the operating room, and then you make them proficient inside the operating room and uh, patient outcomes get better. And that's, you know, exciting stuff, at least for an educator nerd like myself. You know, so, you know, you know, can you do this outside of one little, you know, program? And the answer is yes. So, you know, Dr. Um, Telemonte talked to you about a, a meeting he saw me at in Sao Paulo, Brazil, but he was not the only one inspired by this meeting. Um, basically, um, after at this meeting in Brazil, uh, Mark Besselink, who is a sort of a leading surgeon in the Netherlands, said, I want to bring this program to the Netherlands. Uh, so we did that. These are a couple of his PhD medical students uh, that came, you know, learned how to do the program, uh, took it to each center within um within the Netherlands. And I used to fly there once or twice a year that after they got through the training program and were ready to do their first surgeries, I was there coaching them. You know, so I would go to Netherlands for a week and everyone's like, oh, that's so fun. I'm like, 
I was basically in the OR nonstop, you know, <laughs> watching people do robotic whipples. Uh, so it is fun in its own right, but it's not as cool as, you know, going to see the windmills and stuff like that. But uh, what they showed, just the same training program, um, you know, that I haven't really described in detail, but it's the same one I did in um, uh, in Pittsburgh, but basically we found that there is no negative impact of the first learning curve and that this could be done in a whole country. And I think we ended up training about 20 centers uh, throughout the Netherlands. Um, and, you know, that was really exciting, but I think uh, what's most exciting is the generational changes that will come from it. And I have several examples of this, but this one, you know, is I think um, one of the bigger ones going on right now is that once you train the next generation, then they could train the next generation. So this LearnBot program started in Europe a couple months after um, that Lelapse training program ended in the Netherlands. So now all those surgeons in the Netherlands are taking the training program uh, that I developed, and they're using that training program to to train um, all these surgeons in Europe. And even though that's great, because you know I don't have the time to maintain my practice here and then fly over Europe, you know how cool would it be to just you know be in Ireland one time, Geneva another time, et cetera. So they've have I think about eight countries um, that they've started in, and maybe about uh, twelve or fourteen surgeons so far. But this will be ongoing, you know, for several years. You know, but still, you know, as we as we take this and disseminate um, these programs outside, you know, we're still trying to uh, advance them within our own institution. So I primarily dealt with uh, fellows when I was at Pittsburgh, um, and now I primarily um, uh, work with residents here at the University of Chicago, North Shore. Um, and here are a couple of my um, uh, my residents uh, taking part of the training program. And you can see uh, this uh, uh, resident on the right is doing some virtual reality drills here. Um, and this uh, resident on the left is doing some um, suturing uh, dry lab drills here. Um, and I, you know, this isn't, this is kind of closed up, but uh, we have a beautiful sim lab and, you know, have uh, a couple robots and a few different simulators down here, uh, which we can then, you know, teach uh, all our general surgery residents how to do these things and have programs for the urologists, gynecologists, et cetera. Um, and, you know, sort of my next goal is to try and take this to the Chicagoland area. So um, in October, we had our first sort of Chicago wide, and this is mostly the North Shore University of Chicago, but we're, we're here at UIC uh, and all the Chicago programs here are represented. And we have a meeting tomorrow about how to keep expanding uh, these training programs uh, within, uh, within the Chicagoland. Um, but not only that, um, just with this international re reputation, we have a lot of international surgeons um, that reach out that have interest in um, learning how to do, you know, pancreas research or robotic research or robotic training. So um, these are a couple international research assistants I have right now uh, from Argentina and from Korea um, that are here to um, to learn more, um, not only about uh, about pancreatic research, robotic research, but also how to do some of these techniques themselves. So um, in conclusion, you know, uh, there's so much fun stuff going out there uh, and there's uh, so much more to do. I mean, so we've learned a lot about the multimodality um, therapy for pancreas cancer, 
you know, and we know we need chemotherapy and we know probably before, you know, or a combination of before and after is good. But now it's like, which one, how many cycles before, how many after, how to include radiation. So as many questions as we answer, there's so many more that we continue to generate. Um, and it's just exciting, you know, to be part of these trials, you know, here at North Shore. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of, um, you know, also treating people that have the diseases is, is trying to figure out new ways to detect uh, the disease and sort of, you know, growing um, high risk clinics. And this is an area, where, you know, where uh, there's still so much to do and, uh, and so much excitement because, you know, a lot of scans is a lot of stress. It's a lot of money, et cetera. So, you know, finding, you know, markers, you know, molecular signals, et cetera, that lets us know, you know, who to screen more closely and who not to screen as closely uh, is equally important. You know, and lastly, I think that, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, no one th would think lap coles, you know, would be done you know, laparoscopically and, you know, and, you know, some of uh, people that started doing that in the nineties were considered heretics and it's crazy. And now no one would consider doing them open. And, and I think just, you know, that was number one surgery being done by general surgeons and very high volume surgery. And now, you know, it's, it's cycled through that and then colon and then stomach and, you know, pancreas, you know, the beast, you know, it's here now. And so this is kind of the era to make that shine. Um, you know, so I'd like to thank you for your attention, you know, thank my partner, mentor, um, and all around nice guy and friend, uh, Dr. Talamanti, who I always say, you know, not only was my partner, but formerly a client, as he mentioned, and I always take this picture of the pretest. This is sort of the first thing they ever do in the robotic training program. So I have hundreds and hundreds of these pictures holding up this little model behind a simulator. So anyway, uh, thanks for your attention. And I look forward to any questions you guys have. Wow, <laughs> I just have to take a moment here. Um, I'll invite Dr. Talamanti uh, back as well. Um, Dr. Hogue, this, that was incredible. Um, I, if you could have seen me during the presentation, my jaw was out and, and <laughs> dropped for, for most of it. Um, so this was just so impressive. Um, we'll open up for questions. We have a lot that have come through during the talk. And um, if, as, as folks are listening, uh, please, be sure to continue asking questions. And I wanna remind everybody that this session is being recorded. And so we will be posting it on the Rolf um, website. So you will have access to it afterwards. Um, again, if you don't feel comfortable asking questions directly in the chats, you can do so by emailing us at info at rolffoundation.org. Okay, let's get started. So Dr. Ho, you talked about um, six months of chemo after um, surgery. You, you, what about before surgery? Is there a certain set timeline that typically you, you'd like to, to have that run? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's sort of what the current debate is now. So those studies that say six months, it's surgery first, then six months of surgery. We did a study just at Pittsburgh looking at any combination. And we did find that six months was a magic number. So say you got zero before six after, six before zero after, three before three after, anything less than six was worse outcomes and anything more than six was no better outcomes. You know, so there is some regression to that number, but I kind of, you know, um, am more going towards a total neoadjuvant approach. So as much as you can give that before is better. But the reason being is because I think getting the patient all of their therapy is super important. So, you know, if someone's sort of, you know, dwindling off, 
you know, you know, not having the greatest time at chemo and they're three months in, am I going to push it to six months and maybe, you know what I mean? Overdo it. No, you know, you go to surgery, give them the time off and come back. But I think uh, what you really want to see is you want to get all that um, chemo and surgery um, to the patient. So I used to be more like if it's resectable, I would give them two months up front. If it was borderline resectable, I'd give them four months up front. And if it was locally advanced, I'd give them all six months up front and, and see if I could do the surgery. But now, you know, I try and give as much of the six as I can, but paying attention to how the patient's handling the chemo so that you don't overdo it and derail them from becoming a surgical candidate. Because we did find that about 8% of people may get an infection, may get an admission, may get something, you know, uh, that could derail them from surgery. So you do want to prevent that from happening. Thank you for, for sharing that. So um, we had a question come in about, um, about advocating for yourself. What if the doctor doesn't advise chemo after? Um, should you should you continue to to push it? Um, is it is it important to cite the like the studies that you shared tonight to, to educate your care team? What would you be your your advice for folks? Yeah, it's very interesting because I I think for a doctor to not advise chemotherapy that that doctor is not following you know the standard of care um and that's uh you know that's uh hard to hear but i think advocating for yourself is important you know it's a tough market in chicago and i would say that probably two-thirds of our patients get second opinions um or i'm their second opinion etc so one i always encourage patients to get a second opinion and i say if nothing else you know if you have two people tell you the exact same thing you know, um, then it should be reassuring. Um, or if they tell you the exact same thing and one is more convenient or you feel more comfortable with one person, that's equally important because this might be the most important decision you make in your entire life. And you have to, you know, go into it feeling good about it. You know, the problem is, is that when you go to a couple people um, and you don't hear the, the same advice. And what I tell patients is that, you know, because it's usually the opposite. The patients don't want chemo and I'm the one telling them they should. Mm -hmm. And I say to them, listen, I don't get paid $1 if you get chemotherapy, but I think it's the best thing for you. So that's, you know, so believe me, you know, <laughs> that I'm sending you to do this because I think it's better for your overall cancer care, not because it's better for me. So, um, so yeah, I don't think there's any pancreas cancer out there where chemotherapy is not recommended. So if they're seeing a surgeon that's saying don't get chemotherapy, then they should definitely see another doctor. And I, I don't, I'd be interested what Dr. Talamani thinks about this. I, I couldn't agree more. I think there are certain subtleties to what Dr. Hogue just mentioned. And, and, and second opinions are never a bad thing. Most of my practice now at this stage is second and third, being somebody's second or third opinion. But it can be confusing. And, and I would say uh, a, a couple of caveats to what Dr. Hogue said. First of all, if, if it seems too good to be true, and, and you're getting rushed into the operating room with this particular disease, that's a good time to hit the pause button and, and, and get a second opinion because the paradigm has shifted. It, it is no longer about how fast you can get them in the operating room, how fast you can do the surgery. There are better quality metrics than speed. The paradigm has shifted. It's about a multidisciplinary care and, and, and just as important uh, uh, as what Dr. Hogue is implying here is just as important as finding a good surgeon that understands the sequencing of the therapy. It's just as important to find a medical oncologist who is, is comfortable treating the patients with chemotherapy, whether they do it before, after, or some combination thereof. It, this is not the type of cancer and it's not the type of chemotherapy 
where you need a medical oncologist who's doing all the other different specialties, does treat some kidney cancer, some breast cancer, some prostate cancer. And when a pancreas cancer patient shows up, uh, he treats that patient. Just like you want a specialty surgeon, you should have a specialty oncologist who un understands the nuances. It's just like Dr. Hoke said, you want to give the therapy up front. That paradigm has shifted. Uh, um, most major cancer centers and most major uh, surgical oncologists or uh, surgical oncologists who have a major focus on pancreas cancer acknowledge the benefits of neoadjuvant therapy, of upfront therapy. But you have to have a good medical oncologist who's not going to pound it in so hard, so relentlessly that you weaken the patient to the point where they don't become a surgical candidate. They're too tired. They're too beat up to go to surgery. So I think that's an important nuance. And then I think the other point that Dr. Hogue brought up is the six cycles. You, you, you know, her research has shown that six is better than three or four, but, but the other studies have shown that if you can't get six, you, you will not get the full benefit of the therapy. So again, you have to have a, a good strategy is to give as much as you can before surgery, because after surgery, we know that even in the best hands, even when Dr. Hogue does an extraordinarily smooth, uncomplicated post-operative Whipple, some of those patients, up to 50% of those patients won't get the post-operative therapy for a variety of reasons. And that's, that's an irrefutable fact. That number never goes down. So, so get a second opinion, be open to the, to the suggestion or the recommendation, more than a suggestion, the recommendation that somebody's gonna to wanna to give you chemotherapy for, as Melissa said, maybe up to four to six months before they operate on you and be wary of the rush to the operating room. Uh, um, that, that may not be in your best interest. So I, I, I would echo everything Dr. Hogue said and, and emphasize the, the need for being comfortable about getting a second opinion and then understanding the logic of giving the therapy before surgery rather than just trying to pound it all in after surgery. 50% of the time, that never works. And, and I appreciate the the notion. I think oftentimes people think, well, if I get a second opinion, am I going to offend, you know, my my doctor? And and the importance of actually going out and doing that. And so I also I, I take it that you work closely with the oncologist um, to make sure that the patient is is getting what they need when they need. Is is that correct? Well, I, I'll take the first stab at that and let Melissa close on that, but unequivocally. Just like you would not go to a medical oncologist who uh, sporadically or uh, doesn't regularly treat a woman with breast cancer, you'd never go to a, a, a breast oncologist who dabbled in it. Why in God's name would you take the most formidable cancer on the planet, pancreatic cancer, the hardest one to cure, and go to a, a medical oncologist that doesn't specialize in it? So at North Shore, we have a handful of people uh, uh, that, that, that treat the patients with medical oncology. Uh, treat them medically uh, in oncology with chemotherapy. We have two surgeons and I believe three or four oncologists. I, I think we just added our fourth one who does neoadjuvant therapy for pancreatic cancer. So uh, in, in our shop, it's uh, as important to find the right oncologist as it is the right surgeon. Yeah, and we do that by by making it easy. You know, one is that, you know, weekly multidisciplinary tumor board conferences where we put everyone in the same room, look at the scans with, you know, with radiology, look at the path with pathology, you know, have uh, GI there, medonc, you know, radonc, et cetera. So part of that is is weekly getting together to discuss, you know, every case or, or the more challenging cases. Uh, and then also, um, you know, physically, uh, being in the similar area. So, you know, say uh, the medical oncologist sees someone, 
you know, that, hey, needs surgery, you know, we, we add them into our clinics and vice versa. And I would say that uh, I make just as many appointments to see me as I do to see the medical oncologist. Because if I see what their diagnosis is, I don't want that delay where they see me, I then refer them, you know, I give them same day visits, you know, so that they can kind of meet everyone and, and hear from two different specialties, you know, how to uh, attack and, and treat this disease. And, and so it, it's just basically by, by working as if they're your partners, you know, um, you know, like uh, on paper, as they are just, uh, you know, sort of uh, from a multidisciplinary environment. Sure. Okay, our next question comes in from uh, John. He says, I'm a stage four pancreatic cancer patient with the spread to my lungs. For informational purposes, I was diagnosed in October 2019, had full initially, a couple of others, two weeks ago started gamcitabine, gam Jim Sadie. Sorry for my mispronunciation. Um, because of the severity, and then had to stop. Uh, oh, and, and cap setabine. Um, had to stop the cap setabine because of severity of mouth sores. Close to trying again using week on week off dosing. He says, I believe there's no surgery that Whipple uh, is possible because there's the spread. Is that still the case, or are there any surgical options for someone who's had moved to stage four? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, everything, you know, is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, you know, we did uh, two studies at Pittsburgh um, looking at this specifically. Um, one of the things is that um, pulmonary metastases tend to be more indolent uh, than metastases to the liver or carcinomatosis. So we were specifically noting that patients that had pulmonary-only metastases were living longer. And people on Fulfurinox have a, you know, median um, survival of 11 months. So we with you being over two years, you've already defied, you know, that median odds and have done well with it. Uh, so depending on circumstances, there are cases where people will operate um, with stable or improved disease. Um, and so indolent small volume lung disease may be one of them or, uh, you know, a single or oligometastatic, meaning very few um, that could be removed at the same time. So, um, you know, there's a lot of questions about what the tumor itself looks like in terms of, you know, vessel involvement. Uh, but I would say the answer is not equivocally no, um, that it used to be in the past, but also for people out there, anyone with stage four disease, you know, off the bat, you know, should not be considering surgery because it's not in your best interest. But your story that you tell me two years out, I would say that there potentially is a role, but there's so much more information that would, would be needed. But with the pulmonary only, um, those tend to be more slow growing and favorable to resection down the road. And that was what we saw in one of our studies. Yeah, I, I, I would echo everything Dr. Hoag said and add, add the caveat that when you have stage four pancreatic cancer, your length of survival, your quality of life is not going to be driven by whether or not you have the Whipple. Um, uh, you know, patients don't die from a tumor in the head of the pancreas. They die when it spreads. And, 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 and controlling that spread of disease, and as Dr. Hoag said, a two-year control is, is very, very unusual, very rare. Uh, having said that, there might be a role to consider a combined type of approach where surgery might be factored in in the very special patient who's got control of that distant disease. But remember, once you get stage four disease, your length of life and your quality of life is not gonna be driven by having an operation that removes a tumor that's already gone to seed. 
and, and it's, it's being driven by your ability to control that metastatic disease. And then in those very special situations, as Dr. Ho said, that's when you want to maybe consider whether surgery has a role in that unique, highly selective uh, patient population. This, this next question goes back to um, the, the chemo or, or surgery first. Uh, I was told my brother needed to have surgery first because of a gastric outlet obstruction that was preventing him from eating. Are there circumstances that surgery might be needed before chemo? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, uh, that might be definitely a scenario depending on the the quality of the tumor, meaning whether it's resectable with the blood vessels or not. Uh, but that, you know, in a resectable tumor that you can't eat, um, that's definitely an option. There are ways, you know, to potentially palliate that one uh, to get you through chemotherapy. One is an endoscopic stent. Um, however, the endoscopic stent, there are locations where this does not work well, um, and it does um, make you have to be on a, a just a thick liquid diet um, and not able to eat normally. Um, and then doing a, a, a surgical bypass in that scenario uh, would not be ideal because um, thinking about surgery down the road, but it's not necessarily contraindicated. So in the right patient, um, I would definitely operate first um, if, if the patient couldn't eat because of that. Anything to add, Dr. Talamonte? No, I just think uh, um, sometimes patients come and you can just look at them. And Dr. Hogan, and I have talked about this many times. You just look at the patient and you know you're only going to get one modality. Um, and, and sometimes you're not going to be able to give some old timer six months of therapy and, and then an operation, then maybe a few weeks afterwards of radiation therapy. And so sometimes there's patients where we say, you know, the, the best uh, chance of this patient getting therapy for their tumor is to take them to surgery first because sometimes they choose not to have the, the chemotherapy. Melissa said our numbers were over 80%, but they're not 100%. And so it's really a selection process and using good judgment and, and trying to figure out the best way to deliver most of what they need uh, to some of those patients. And it's not just elderly patients. Sometimes it can be a young patient who's really debilitated and uh, has, has uh, become malnourished. And you know, you're not gonna necessarily get that patient through six months or even four months of therapy, but that's always preferred. Sometimes you have to pay attention to giving them supplemental nutrition so you can get strong enough to get chemo and have even more time to do surgery. So there's no, there's no hard and fast rules carved in stone. It's about judgment. Sounds like a, a big balancing act. Uh, you were talking about the, the different screenings and the MRIs. Who, um, who can people contact at North Shore to be able to order the screenings? Is there a process that needs to be followed? Um, so it's not that universally screening you know, is covered like to the general population. So um, typically um, a lot of our referrals come from genetic testing when, when it's the case of, um, you know, a hereditary pancreas cancer. So people that have any cancers almost, the, the NCCN guidelines will recommend this testing or people with family histories recommend testing. So people that, um, you know, that, that are concerned they may be at risk, um, we can refer to uh, genetic counselors to get this testing. The other um, people that we screen are patients with cysts. So just as, um, you know, ER visits or cross-sectional imaging becomes more and more popular, you know, there's about 8 million um, 
pancreas cysts diagnosed each year. And of those 8 million, about 8,000 about 8, are actually pancreas cancer. So there's a lot of non-cancerous you know, cysts out there. So I would say that anyone um, who incidentally, they had appendicitis, they had XYZ, but then someone also noted a cyst on the pancreas, that that enough, you know, um, they should ask their primary care referral to a pancreas specialist, um, and that person can order imaging. And and that what I would say is probably about um, ninety percent of of what I see is people that were in the ER for a kidney stone, um, and then were sent to me for a cyst, or people that had a breast cancer or some other cancer, and they got genetic testing, and uh, and then were sent to me for pancreas surveillance. So I, I'm not sure if just you know the general public. Uh, we'll be able to get it and have it covered by insurance. Okay. Um, so as far as who qualifies for robotic surgery, is is it is robotic surgery going to be standard in the future for every med student to learn? Uh, so this is kind of a, a multi-part question. Is there pushback from the old school, um, you know, doctors? Um, what's, how, how does, how do you see the future of that going? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say that, you know, just following history as an example, the answer is yes, you know, to, to everything. So as an example is that uh, fundamentals of laparoscopic surgery, a course is now being required for the American Board of Surgery for residents to graduate from residency, you know, and that was probably, you know, been the case for about 15 years, whereas, you know, 10 years before that, people were calling laparoscopic surgeon crazy, you know, and then there's also now fundamentals of endoscopic surgery um, that's now required for surgeons to have that skill. So I, I think probably within the next decade, we will see um, a training uh, that is um, requiring to have some sort of fundamentals of robotic surgery, although it may not be called that because there is already uh, something out there with that name, but not for that purpose. Uh, but I think that it's going to be required for residents. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't have any of this data here, but if you look at the graphs of surgeries being done robotically in the last six or seven years by, um, uh, by general surgeons, it's just kind of straight up, you know, um, the curve is exploding. And, and I would say that um, probably in 15 or 20 years, we're going to probably, um, you know, quadruple the amount of surgeries that are being done now robotically. I'm interested to see what Dr. Talamani with his gray hair has to say. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, when I hear this question, I always quote Tom Watson, who used to be the CEO of IBM. And, you know, their artificial intelligence is called Watson. Right. And, and uh, when discussing technology, he said that technology is neither good nor bad. So it's not good technology or bad technology. It, it, it's how you use it. And remember, technology is relentless. So that robot that I trained on with Melissa five years ago is obsolete. And the next generation of robotic technology is going to make this machine right now, which everybody is enthralled with, it's going to make that one look like the Model T Ford. So the technology is relentless. And, and I, as I said in my introductory comments about Dr. Hogue, the key is teaching the next generation how to do it safely. And, and, and so she, Dr. Hogue and her partners and her peers will make extraordinary contributions over the next 10, 20 years. None will be more important. None will be more, more valuable to the patients they serve than how to train the next generation to do these operations safely because that's, the, that's, the, that's what's different than inventing computers or artificial technology. There's a patient's life at stake. And so 
um, the, the, the benefits of minimally invasive surgery. No, but we, we, we accept it for, as Dr. Ho said, cholecystectomies, even colon cancers and esophageal cancers, prostate surgery. Remember when robotic prostatectomies started, people thought they were crazy. They couldn't do the good lymph nodes. The margins were all gonna be positive. The operations were gonna take forever. And then people did, had to do special fellowships in, in, in prost, robotic surgery to be skilled to do prost, robotic prostatectomies. Now, if you don't finish your general urology residency with, with a certain level, high number of robotic prostatectomies, that residency is in trouble and may not get accreditation. It's become the standard of care for early, or early prostate cancer. So I, I think uh, Dr. Hoke's timetable is probably right. It's probably gonna take about another 10, 15, maybe even 20 years to get there, but they're gonna get there and the technology is relentless. It's only gonna get more pervasive uh, and, and the skill, the skills, the, the skill acquisition, the teaching of those skills is exactly where Dr. Hoke's gonna make her biggest impact. I, I, I think it's inevitable. I saw the turn, I saw the pivot point, like I said, about five, six years ago. And I said, you, you know, we have to do this, it's the future. Um, we may not get there in my career, but I suspect that by the end of Dr. Ho's career, um, uh, this will not be a, uh, a extraordinary thing to say we do robotic whipples at our institution. Wow, and as, I mean, as we've seen with the pandemic, everything has been remote. Do you think that at any point that um, because of the, the technology that it would be remote, is it gonna change the access of care at all? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's why the robot was developed. It was actually uh, DOD technology uh, for um, soldiers in combat. That was sort of the initial push um, be behind uh, developing this ro remote technology. And they have actually done uh, a cholecystectomy between um, New York and and in uh, Paris, you know, where someone in uh, in one continent was operating on someone in another continent. So uh, basically, the answer is that's why it was developed. And yes, it's definitely possible. Um, and you know, there are different things like uh, you know, frequently people will come um, to North Shore to watch us operate to see us how to do that, do the operation. Um, and sort of one of my um, you know my disclosure is I'll go out for people, only for people who have done training uh, like mine, I, I will proctor their first cases, but I, I won't proctor or teach anyone who hasn't done any training because I don't think it's safe. Um, but, uh, but that's sort of what we do now, but they do have this something called in-touch technology with uh, iPads that basically you could be in the room, they can hook you into the room camera, the robot camera, and you can guide these surgeries remotely. Uh, so that's available, it's at select centers now, about um, half a dozen. I've been trying to get it at our center, but I haven't been successful yet, but I think we're gonna see that a lot more often. Incredible, anything to add, Dr. Talamonte? Nope, I think she said it well. <clears throat> Um, are you seeing more clean margins more often with the robotic? Yeah, so it's a great question. It's kind of loaded for one reason, is that um, the AJCC staging system um, changed in 2018. So, uh, so across the board, there have been an increase in positive margins in the last three years in any study. It's because it was before considered uh, negative as negative. Uh, now it's considered you have to be uh, greater than one millimeter to be negative. 
Um, so, you know, we've done studies uh, comparing uh, robot to open uh, and are equivalent and better in some. The only caveat is in the last few years, you'll see across the board an increase uh, in margin negatives, but that's more, that's not to do with the technology. It's due with the definition of staging. And the Royal College of Surgeons in Europe has been going by that staging system for you know over a decade. So, uh, so it also depends on which uh, the location of the studies. But equivalent um, equivalent margin negativity, and you can really see by that video how amazing the visualization is uh, for for those blood vessels, and you can't just see it that well open. So, so I think that uh, in time we'll probably even see that it's better, and we have seen that in some series. But for the most part, the bulk of the data says equivalent. So our next question says, I have stage three pancreatic cancer. I'm 50 year old, 58 year old female, and I have the mutant gene that puts me in an uh, at risk for the cancer as well as breast. Would you recommend that I have my breast removed as a precaution? Um, so is it, so it, one, I'm not a breast surgeon and I, I'm not sure exactly what mutation is a, a BRCA2 mutation. Um, you know, there are differing guidelines uh, for that. There are people um, out there that have those mutations and still have their breasts. Um, you know, I, I operated on someone one for pancreas and they've already had two um, breast surgeries, um, but have not had, you know, prophylactic mastectomies. So they're, you know, un unfortunately after one breast cancer, they're still at risk for another. And even after two, they're at risk for more. Uh, so I would say that it's a, it's a tough decision. Um, but if it is uh, BRCA2, um, there are certain therapies that are more effective, you know, um, basically platinum-based chemotherapy and PARB inhibitors. Um, so if not done already, um, depending on your mutation, um, you should discuss with your medical oncologist um, mutational analysis, or even go, you know, go to PanCan for Know Your Tumor Foundation, uh, because you may be um, eligible for targeted uh, immunotherapy. And, and those are some of the uh, the great uh, innovations that have that that we've discovered in the last decade. So the next question um, goes back to screening. Uh, what screening can be done on a proactive stay ahead of the, um, of the beast basis? My father turned yellow on a Sunday and by Tuesday he had three months to live. This was 14 years ago. So I live with the question of, is it growing inside me? And I just don't know yet. I want yearly scans and blood work, genetic testing so that if it begins, I could catch it. Just like I go in for annual mammograms and every three years for colonoscopy, I'd like to baseline to, to have a baseline and then monitor my pancreatic my pancreas yearly is this available is it unrealistic is it what, what would you recommend here yeah it's a good question so I guess um you know to have familial pancreas cancer and be eligible for screening it's usually two relatives so um, I think that the first thing to do is potentially sync genetic counseling. Uh, to determine whether or not you have a mutation. Um, and then they can go through, because there are some syndromes, you know, like uh, Jimmy Carter had a P16 mutation. And even if there was only, you know, one person in the family with pancreas cancer, there was half a dozen with melanoma. You know, so I think it's very important to look at the whole family tree and see, because there's probably about a dozen uh, mutations out there, um, you know, BRCA2 being the most common uh, and most recognizable, but some of them have other uh, malignancies other than breasts that they're linked with. Uh, so I think that's the first place to start um, before going on to screening because, uh, you know, uh, risk stratification, it changes depending on what your likelihood is of obtaining it. Uh, and, you know, false 
positives can be detrimental as well. So you want to make sure you're you're um, looking at the right uh, that you're in the right group when uh, when you're being screened. Absolutely agree. Uh, you know, the first step is not to twist your primary care doctor's hand, arm into saying you're going to get a special pancreas CT scan. That's not the first step. Um, and, and, and no one has really shown that, that a CT scan of the pancreas is a good screening tool. That, that, that actually has been shown that it doesn't necessarily pick up early pancreatic cancer. So we're, we're, we're still in the era uh, where a lot of research is being done on blood tests, uh, urine tests even, to see if there's special proteins in the urine. We don't have a PSA like they do for prostate cancer. We don't have a mammographic uh, radiographic test like we have for breast cancer. Um, a, a, a cost efficient and sensitive specific radiographic screening tool, we don't have that. We don't have a blood test that tells you your PSA, your pancreas specific antigen is going up yet. So so we're, we're in an era where uh, uh, that will be a major breakthrough, just like immunotherapy, just like neoadjuvant therapy, robotic therapy. We're, we're still in need of a good screening tool. So I, I, I would strongly uh, recommend uh, that you start with what Dr. Hoag's recommendation was, is talk to your primary care doctor, see if you can get genetic counseling and see if they take a good history. Sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll get that tripwire finding that allows you to have your insurance company uh, pay for these tests. Now, whether it's a blood test, an imaging study, an endoscopic ultrasound, depending on what your family history is, there, there are strategies now uh, that can uh, be matched to the genetic risk that you carry or the familial risk. But, but um, remember, the, the most common risk factor for getting pancreatic cancer is smoking and pancreatitis and age. So, so you know, my own father died of pancreatic cancer. He was 81 years old. I diagnosed him with stage four pancreatic cancer um, and, and, and he died shortly thereafter. But my sister and I don't have a strong family history of any other uh, hereditary cancers or any other familial syndromes that would even smack of a genetic test uh, or a genetic syndrome. So, you know, do I go get a CAT scan every year for, because my father died at 81 and he was a big time smoker back in the day? Uh, I don't, because I don't know that there's any data to suggest you need to do that, or that is even effective. Okay. Our next question is, sounds a little bit uh, as a hypothetical. So a 75-year-old female continues to get chemo treatments. She was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer over five years ago. She never got surgery and is tired, but has all her hair and drives herself to chemo. Are these outcomes average with cancer patients, or does it really depend person to person? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I would no. say that one won the lottery. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. okay. Um, so we're going to wrap up. I, I want, and I'm going to give you a, um, a heads up. I want, I want from each of you, your top three takeaways um, that you want people to, to walk away from this session with. And to our audience, if you have additional questions or we didn't get to yours, please send us an email at info at rawfoundation.org and we'll try and get those answered for you. And again, everything is being recorded and we'll, we'll send out afterwards. Um, so Dr. Hoag, what would you say your, your top three would be? So, you know, just kind of following in my, um, my presentation, one is if you have pancreas cancer, whoever you're seeing, whether it's a surgeon, radiologist, um, or radiation oncologist, medical oncologist, ask them about what all the therapies are out there and to be 
you know, sent to talk to every one of them. Uh, Cause you know, some people are candidates for immunotherapy, some aren't, some for radiation, some aren't, you know, for, some for surgery, some aren't, most are for, for chemotherapy. So one is you, if you have it, think multimodality therapy and how do you see every specialist to find out what's best for you. And if you need a second opinion, that's okay. Uh, two is for people that are high risk out there, uh, find someone to survey you. So if you have the family history, if you have a gene, if you've, uh, you know, look at any CT reports because you went, you know, for here or there, look to see if you have pancreas cysts. And if you do, um, get into a surveillance program. And lastly, you know, um, if you are going to surgery, ask um, the surgeon if they do minimally invasive surgery. And if they don't ask why not, you know, or look for uh, centers in the area that may have minimally invasive uh, surgical options for them. So I, I would say those would be my three take homes. Great. How about you, Dr. Talamante? Almost verbatim, almost <laughs> verbatim. I, 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 and I think there's a reason why, because there are certain uh, uh, paradigms now, certain things we know about pancreatic cancer that are irrefutable um, and undebatable. Uh, patients who get multidisciplinary care or multimodality care do better than patients who just get a quick operation. It, it, it's the totality of care uh, that results in the highest survival rates. How you sequence that care um, we, we think the data strongly supports at least a partial neoadjuvant strategy, if not a total neoadjuvant therapy. But the key to long-term survival with surgery is to understand that it's, a, it, it's combined therapy that, that has the best outcome. And then secondly, I, I think, uh, as Dr. Ho pointed out, the standard of care for a, a, a lo localized pancreatic cancer in the left side of the pancreas is minimally invasive surgery. And minimally invasive surgery for a Whipple procedure is not heresy anymore. It's not radical recklessness. It's, a, it's an acceptable, uh, I think, a, a, an encouraged modality, but you have to find the right person to do it. You have to get somebody that, that's not on their learning curve anymore. And then thirdly, I think the, uh, there's a strategy of surveillance for these pre-malignant cystic lesions, as, as Dr. Hoke said, I can't begin to tell you how many patients we see every single week who get a CAT scan for a kidney stone, uh, an MRI, because somebody wants to look at their aortic aneurysm a little bit more closely. And oh, by the way, there, there's these scattered small little cysts in the pancreas. And, and surveillance instead of surgery, observation instead of operation is perfectly acceptable for most of those patients. But you better, again, get yourself to a place that, that has that strategy and has, uh, follows guidelines and an algorithm of care so that if you do hit a tripwire finding on, on a subsequent follow-up, uh, you know you're gonna get a good surgery, but it shouldn't be a rush to surgery uh, for everybody that gets a tiny little cyst discovered incidentally or accidentally uh, on a scan done for some other reason. Um, it's like an epidemic out there are these findings and you have to be very judicious and careful that you don't overoperate on those patients because most of them don't need surgery. But the ones that do, those are the ones you want to make sure get the operation they need. Sure. Those sure. would be my, my points. Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you for not only sharing the information that you've shared today, but for the fourth, um, for the first, excuse me, foresight um, in, in what you're doing and how you're teaching this to the next generation and how you're really um, pushing forward in, in making sure that patients have the best care um, that's, that's possible and, and available to them in, in the area and technology that we have these days. And I look forward to 
having another discussion and continuing to hear of all of your great work and, and see where this is gonna go down the line. So thank you so much uh, for sharing all of your important research and, and details with us again tonight. Thanks for thank having me. Thank you for the opportunity to participate. Absolutely. And I also want to thank uh, Savina and the Cancer Wellness Center for partnering us, with us tonight and thank everybody who is here on the call um, for participating and leaning in on asking such candid questions. Um, you know, as I said, we are recording. We're sending this out. If you're catching this on the replay on social media, please be sure to write replay in the comments and uh, add your questions in there so that we could be sure to pass those along. And don't forget that uh, to get your raffle tickets for our very special in-home dining opportunity and continue to comment, like, and share Ralph's World Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month posts. And join us next month on December 8th, where we'll be talking about breakthroughs in pancreatic cancer research and also the impact of your donations. You could find a link to register in the chat. And if you have ideas for future Wellness Wednesday uh, episodes, or speakers topics, please email us at info at ralphfoundation.org. We'll see you back here next Thursday, November 18th at noon to announce the raffle winner. And also our board president, Rachel Scheinkopf and our executive director, Stacia Hart, will be here to um, not only announce the winner, but talk about the research that you've supported and, and Rolf has supported this past year because of the donations that are coming in. As, as the doctor said earlier, you know, the idea that um, they're able to do their work because of foundations that are able to, to give them the research grants to do it. So we, we greatly appreciate that. And as we head into Thanksgiving and the holiday season, we wanna know how grateful we are for each and every one of you out there. On behalf of the Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation and Cancer Wellness Center, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Until next time, stay healthy and take good care. Good night. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And feel free to leave a five-star review because it helps people find us. Ralph Pancreatic Cancer Foundation provides personal support to those affected by pancreatic cancer through tailored resources, connections and education, and funding for early detection research. To learn more about Ralph Foundation, please visit us at ralphfoundation.org or call 773-989-1108. We'll see you next time.